Good evening. Uh, I'm Judy Cooper. I coordinate the public programs here at the Pratt Library, and we're very delighted to see you here. It's my pleasure this evening to introduce to you uh, Ralph Moore. He's going to do the honors for Ontario Patilla this evening. Good evening. From Edmondson Village to Charles Village, Roland Park to Park Heights, tales from the Northwood neighborhood and Easterwood Park flow from this fascinating piece of work of his. Antero Piatello's brilliantly gripping book is a gift to Baltimore. In Not in My Neighborhood, Piatello tells us some things I'll bet many of us didn't know. For example, Baltimore City's population hit a million after World War II briefly, page 78. Or that some folks we think of as saints nowadays didn't always walk in the light, but did once wander in the shadows of discrimination. While another, I was always led to believe was a bad man, did far more in his commitment to racial fairness than his detracting storytellers allowed about him. Willie Adams. We learn about the individuals who helped create the policies that made our city what it is today, such as the scientific racism of eugenics and its influences in national government housing lending policy trickled down to our streets. And we learn where the term redlining comes from, from the federal government, not trying to end housing discrimination but using red markings on maps to establish and maintain a racial status quo. Discussing the development of the scientific racism movement in America from the 19th century to now, he writes, the eugenics influence continued to grow. In another decade, it would guide the Federal Housing Administration and its policies. So important is the role of eugenics that much of what follows in this book has some obvious or indirect connection to the movement's legacy. I'm reading another book now uh, called The Protest Psychosis, How Schizophrenia Became a Black Disease by, by uh, Jonathan Metzl. And he talks about eugenics and how that influenced the uh, psychiatric uh, community. That paragraph leapt off the page at me when I read it. It was, it was only on page 46. Antero reminds us of the mistreatment of Jews decades ago at Johns Hopkins University, my alma mater. And we can take some solace in now knowing the president of Johns Hopkins today is Jewish. When he recounts that in January 1966, the late Lawrence Cardinal Sheehan was spat upon when he testified at city council in favor of open housing, we can't help thinking about the reaction to this weekend's health care bill passage and how and I quote uh, President Dwight Eisenhower, things are more like today than they've ever been before. <laughs> Piatella ends his book seeing much hope for our country's future in the election of its first African-American president. He might be suggesting there's even hope for Baltimore. I first met Antero Piatella through my colleague Anthony Davis. I don't know if you remember that. When Anthony and I were on the staff at St. Ambrose Housing Aid Center back in the 1970s, it took me years to learn how to pronounce his name. <laughs> but who is this man? Well, from his Facebook page, 
We, we know that he is 67 years old, married to a lovely quilt maker of a woman named Barbara, who told him to go write a book once he retired, and so he did. He holds a Master of Arts degree in Journalism and History from the University of Southern Illinois, Carbondale. He is retired from the Baltimore Sun, where he worked from 1969 until 2004 as a reporter, a bureau chief in South Africa, and a member of its editorial board. Check it out on Facebook. He's a member of the Black Writers Conference. And he might be the only person born in Finland in that group. <laughs> Go to his website to read in his own words what brought him from Helsinki to Harlem to our harbor city. His fascination with changing neighborhoods and his wife's astute direction are what bring us together tonight. And so, as the late Baltimore civil rights activist Samson Green would say, on behalf of the poor people of Baltimore, in particular, thank you, Antero, for your book. And thank you very much, Antero Piatella, for showing us how things got the way they are. It is my honor to introduce him. Please welcome him. Thank you, Ralph, and thank you, the Enoch Pratt Library, Dr. Carla Hayden, and many of the Enoch Pratt uh, wonderful people who work here, including, above all, Jeff Corman, who is the master of the Maryland Room. <clears throat> I also want to introduce my wife, who was already referred to, Barbara. And I want to uh, acknowledge the presence of countless people who helped me with the book, often without even realizing their role. Uh, one of them specifically is uh, deserving a special uh, tribute today, and his name is James Crockett. James. <laughs> Those who read the book will meet James Crockett in many uh, sections of the book. Without him, this book never would have been written. So uh, all, all of my friends who helped me, thank you. This is your book, too. About 10 years ago, I realized that two real estate brokers I had known for decades had been blockbusters. One was white, the other black. And they had made plenty of money from racial panic in the 1950s and 1960s. Faced with the impending demise of their generation, they agreed to talk. They persuaded their friends to do the same and to dig up old documents, including listings and sales contracts. This was the modest beginning of a journey that has produced a book that we celebrate today. Not in my neighborhood how bigotry shaped a great American city chronicles the history of racial neighborhood change in America, seen through the prism of Baltimore from early suburbanization in the 1880s to white flight and its consequences after World War II. Why Baltimore? The answer is simple, because this city was a trailblazer in the evolution of nationwide real estate bigotry. 
A hundred years ago, in 1910, Baltimore became the first city in America to require by law that each block be segregated according to the majority of its residents. Many southern cities copied that law, and the United States occupation authorities in the Philippines wanted to know how Baltimore had done it. In 1917, the Supreme Court struck down such laws. As a result, neighborhoods throughout the nation began barring blacks through restrictive covenants. Other cities again copied Baltimore, where Roland Park had excluded blacks since 1910 as a condition of sale. Beginning in 1913, the Roland Park Company also ended sales to Jews. Half a dozen Jewish families lived in Roland Park in those days, but as they departed, no Jews could replace them. As a result, <clears throat> no Jews could buy homes in that garden sub, sub, suburb for the next 50 years or in the same companies, Guilford, Homeland, and Northwood. Many other suburbs followed Roland Park's exclusion policy, uh, not only in Baltimore, but throughout the nation, because Roland Park, again, was a trailblazer. By 1948, when the Supreme Court agreed to hear a challenge to discriminatory covenants, such restrictions were so common that three of the nine justices asked to be recused from the case. They all lived in neighborhoods that excluded blacks, Jews, Syrians, and Armenians. The remaining justices unanimously outlawed the enforcement of racial covenants. This was a watershed just like Brown versus Board of Education would be six years later. Shelley versus Kramer, as the Supreme Court case is known, had its origins in St. Louis, Missouri. Yet it was a Baltimore case too. Leading the charge against covenants was the lawyer Philip Perlman. He was a former city editor of the Evening Sun. As Baltimore's city solicitor, Perlman had repeatedly advocated covenants and other forms of segregation. He ultimately rose to become the U.S. Solicitor's General. In that role, he now argued against covenants with the support of President Harry S. Truman. Thurgood Marshall argued the case for, N for the NHCP. He had been a victim of such restrictions and seldom had anything good to say about Baltimore, his native city. Also arguing against governance was Alger Hiss, a promising diplomat and Johns Hopkins honorary doctor who had lived just a few blocks from Marshall, but in the lily white Bolton Hill. Two of Hiss's erstwhile Bolton Hill neighbors also submitted a brief. They urged the court to uphold racial covenants, saying those had successfully kept blacks out of Bolton Hill. One of those men was a progressive who in 1911 had founded the Legal Aid Bureau. At the time of the Supreme Court decision, he ran Strom Thurmond's segregationist presidential campaign in Maryland. An old fool, you may say. Well, the other author of the brief, Carlisle Barton, was chancellor of the Episcopal Diocese of Maryland, a man who headed the Johns Hopkins Board of Trustees for 17 years. Let me return to the formative event in 1910. I wanted to go beyond the apparent ca catalyst of the controversy, how a black lawyer named W. Ashby Hawkins bought a narrow three-story row house from a white widow at 1834 McCullough Street 
near Utah Place, one of the most prestigious neighborhoods in the city at the time. For a long time, I wondered what the controversy was all about. After all, other blacks had been acquiring houses on white side streets along Pennsylvania Avenue without public outcry. Gradually, I came to realize that McCullough Street was a skirmish in a far larger battle that was going on in America at the time, an unending civil war that had continued ever since the surrender at Appomattox. Led by former slave owners' sons, such pillars of the Baltimore establishment as the lawyers William L. Marbury and William Cable Bruce, that campaign of revenge had picked up steam in 1895, one year before the Supreme Court's separate but equal ruling. So what happened in 1895? A volcanic eruption happened. Irate voters turned on the Democratic machine that had ruled Maryland for three decades. Republicans swept to power everywhere. Maryland had never seen such a revolt, nor has it since. Once in power, Republicans instituted voting reforms. They hired the first black city workers in Baltimore. When Democrats regrouped and recaptured power four years, uh, four years later, their campaign slogan in Baltimore was, this is a white, white man's city. The Democratic Party acquired a distinctly anti-black character. Thus, in 1903, Edwin Warfield, the successful Democratic candidate for governor, declared, this election is a contest for the supremacy of the white race in Maryland. I am not willing that an ignorant, prejudiced, irresponsible, non-taxpaying Negro's vote shall outweigh a vote cast by an intelligent, educated white man. The founders of this nation, when laying the cornerstone of our country, never intended such monstrous perversion of the principle of manhood suffrage and of that principle that declared the right of the majority to rule. Three times between 1905 and 1911, Democrats tried to disfranchise black voters by statewide referendums. The very nature of race relations in Baltimore changed. Baltimore became a city that was segregated from cradle to grave. As eugenics, a white supremacist philosophy in vogue from the 19-teens to the 1930s gained influence, another significant change occurred in Baltimore. Anti-Semitism increased infecting real estate. Separate real estate market existed in many cities for whites and blacks. In Baltimore, a third tier emerged. It served Jews who were prohibited from living east of the Jones Falls and in several western suburbs as well. Aversion to Jews was such that whenever they appeared in neighborhoods in numbers, other whites evacuated. I document this steady pattern in my book, a pattern that lasted until the 1980s at least. Thus, neighborhoods that were perceived as Jewish became black expansion areas. Whenever such largely Jewish neighborhoods experienced real estate downturns, the lack of other white buyers and renters repeatedly tempted some owner who may not have been Jewish to tap the black market. After World War II, suburbanization resumed with vengeance. With the federal government subsidizing home buyers with FHA and GI mortgages, 
whites could escape cities like Baltimore, which were becoming increasingly black, in Baltimore, the first epicenters of racial change were in an area most of mostly working class neighborhoods along Fulton Avenue and on both sides of West North Avenue from Mount Royal Avenue to Smallwood Street. Those communities from Easterwood Park to Reservoir Hill contained 29% of Baltimore's 75,000 Jews, including the community's oldest members. Within the next 10 years, the same ethnic recycling was repeated in wealthier Windsor Hills, Forest Park, Ashburton, and Arlington. Those were in a northwest quadrangle that contained another 52% of the Jewish population in 1947. A year later, after the Supreme Court's covenant ruling, those heavily Jewish neighborhoods did not become black expansion areas by accident. The Afro-American recommended that blacks move there in a front-page story after the Shelley versus Kramer ruling. Readers were warned against looking for homes along Utah Place in Bolton Hill or elsewhere in the Mount Royal District, where, quote, 150-year-old barn-like houses standing under leaky roofs containing weak floors and lacking heating plants have little to offer, unquote. Instead, the newspaper urged blacks to, quote, make the wise choice, unquote, and move into neighborhoods northwest of Fulton and North Avenues. The Afro story quoted real estate agents, white and black, giving the same advice. The Sun Papers pitched in. Its three newspaper classified real estate ads by race. Advertisements also indicated whether Jews could buy or rent the properties advertised. Once blacks moved to even one block, uh, one block, an entire neighborhood could be advertised as colored in the Sun Papers. This is how the legacy of 1834 McCullough Street was carried on, a legacy that has haunted this city and many other American cities ever since 1910, and I thank you. The most surprising thing for me to find out was how well we had documented all of this. It wasn't easy, but, but I was lucky enough to find uh, things that I never expected, including 34 boxes of Leon Sachs's papers during the many years that he served as the executive director of the Baltimore Jewish Council. Uh, he had trained himself for, uh, for a diplomatic career that never happened. He took shorthand. He, 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 he just filed everything. Uh, and and so, so he attended all these meetings, and he basically took notes, and, and uh, he quoted people as saying things that, that otherwise we never would know about. As a result of this book already, people are starting to remember. <laughs> and uh, for many years, this was a, a subject that people did not want to talk about. It was... Uh, too painful, perhaps it was. It was uh, something that this city decided to to forget. Uh, blacks didn't talk about it. Jews didn't talk about it. Uh, the only only version we had was the version from fleeing uh, people fleeing blacks, uh, and that version today is perpetuated by their grandchildren uh, who know absolutely nothing about this. 
Uh, I'm, I, I doubt that I'm going to return to this topic. I, I think I have another book in, in me, but it, it's not going to be this one. Let me just say about the book that, that in, in my uh, recounting of what happened here, I, I just try to lay out the situation. I, I, uh, I'm not judgmental. Uh, I, I am a coward by nature, so I'm... I'm <laughs> If, if I were in the situation that, uh, that uh, Joseph Meyerhoff was, for instance, uh, where he, when he argued that if he alone among uh, real estate people was uh, forced to begin uh, renting and, and uh, selling houses to Jews, uh, then he would be driven out of business in a, in a, in a market where 90% of the market was, was not Jewish. I can understand it. Now, now that may not be, be admirable, but that's totally understandable. Similarly, uh, the picture that emerges uh, about uh, Morris Goldsecker may not be the picture that uh, many people remember. I, I uh, basically uh, have two gold seekers in the book, one before the riots and, and another one afterwards. So, so that's, that's really the best I can do. Today's Baltimore, the formation of today's Baltimore started just before Christmas in 1944. When blacks crossed Fulton Avenue, which had been the demarcation line for the previous 30 years, and I document in the book how, how uh, the first uh, homeowners were certainly part of the elite. The same thing happens, and, and in fact, uh, it, is, it is fascinating to see that in many of the neighborhoods, uh, Easterwood Park is another one. It was a uh, Jewish uh, needle trade neighborhood. And the incoming uh, black population, uh, they were educators, government employees, they, they were uh, Pullman porters. So, so, uh, so, so socially and economically, they were pretty much at the same level. It made no difference. In Ashburton, it made no difference. Uh, again, the incoming blacks were from the same social strata. Harry Weinberg was a collector of transit systems. Uh, he bought the Fifth Avenue transit line in New York City. He bought uh, Trenton Transit, not because he had any interest in transit. He, he got rid of all the buses and, and, and whatnot. He bought those uh, entities for real estate. That's what he did in Baltimore along Howard Street. He owned a couple of apartment buildings near Loyola, but that's it. I once was able to track down Harry Weinberg, and he said, well, why are you calling me? And I said, because you own this and this and this. And this was pretty much the end of the conversation. Uh, <laughs> the American pattern is rubber barons. When they, they are starting to, to look at the pearly gates, they become uh, uh, philanthropic. And so uh, I think that's answers it. <laughs> Speculators were the only game in town. Uh, there were many people, and, and I asked my friend uh, Jim Crockett about uh, whether you ever sold a, uh, a Goldsecker house, and, and you answered to me that I, I, I never was so lucky, and I'm not quite sure what that meant. <laughs> at, at a time when banks did not lend to blacks, 
the only way blacks could own anything was through either installment purchases and, in fact, uh, land installment contract, which was the preferred mechanism, was an installment contract rent to buy. So it was the speculators who did it. My initial problem was, well, how much do I draw comparisons? And uh, I, was, I started looking at various other cities, and I looked at Boston. Two excellent books have been written about these things in Boston. I, I cannot find a single mention in either of them about restrictive covenants in Boston. For that reason, these kinds of things are not comparable. So, so for that reason, I just decided to res restrict myself to Baltimore. Uh, I belong to a group that meets on, on Saturdays. It was started by uh, the late Judge Bob uh, Watts, and it's called the Judges Club. And, and, and we uh, meet at Cross Keys, and we started talking about this book last Saturday, and it got very contentious. Uh, then uh, somebody decided to cool it off, and we changed su subjects, and, and then we returned to this, this uh, topic, and it, it was ugly. So I think that if we t seek purification, then it comes through this type of a exercise. I'm, I'm sure that in many respects this, uh, this, the story of Baltimore is an extreme one. Uh, after all, we're talking about the city that even segregated its music. Uh, at the same time, uh, elements of this story are present in most American cities. And so I think that in that sense, people will, will find it interesting. Uh, and, and I don't think that the fact that this describes Baltimore is that significant. I mean, this is a story about a city. And it contains some interesting elements that, that should give you some thought and... and uh, if, if a person in Honolulu finds it interesting, well, fine. Many things happened after the war, and, and, and one of the key uh, uh, conditions that, that enabled uh, the uh, Jewish, uh, well, the, the 1948 uh, Supreme Court ruling uh, that struck down restrictive covenants opened up uh, suburbs that we were being built with federal help to Jewish uh, families. And that clearly was one of the reasons why in Baltimore we see this uh, recurrent uh, pattern of uh, neighborhoods changing first from uh, non-Jewish to Jewish and then to African-American. Thank you so much.